Inside the Adventure, episode number 89, with Luke Peters. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's going on, guys? And welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. Today, we're going to hear the story of Luke Peters, host of his own podcast, the Page One Podcast, and the CEO and founder of New Air Appliances. Luke's got a pretty amazing story, um, but mainly we put on our entrepreneurial hat today and hear how Luke uh, just learned the things he needed to learn uh, and figured out what he needed to figure out to start some pretty amazing companies and use his passion for surfing and outdoor experiences to get the skills that he needed to have to be able to adapt to the problems that come up in entrepreneurship and figure it out along the way. So Luke is the founder of five companies and is super skilled at taking a product from concepts to high volume sales through companies like Home Depot, Lowe's, Wayfair, Walmart, and Amazon. Uh, he's the president and CEO of Retail Brand as well, an expert uh, R-commerce agency that works with select brands to manage and accelerate their online businesses on retailer platforms such as Best Buy, Home Depot, Lowe's, Wayfair, and Walmart. Uh, he also hosts his own podcast with Page One Podcast, a twice-weekly podcast featuring a variety of guests and thought leaders on topics ranging from channel strategy, tariffs, influencer marketing, product launches, and the details about how to grow e-commerce with big box retailers. He's also the CEO of New Air Appliances, which he took from founding, uh, you know, started from nothing, all the way to being ranked as one of the fastest growing private companies in terms of retailer, internet retailers in America for three consecutive years. And he's also the president and CEO of Luma Comfort, a manufacturer of beautifully designed portable home appliances available at major retailer uh, retailers around the world. So here's a story of how Luke uh, went from a... Uh, pre-med career and a passion for surfing uh, into finding his calling with entrepreneurship and innovation. Growing up, uh, yeah, I've come from a huge family. So family of 12 and uh, four adopted and family moved out from Ohio when I was like six months old. So I've been born, pretty much not born, but raised in Southern California in um, the Orange County area, which is about 30 miles south of LA in a city called Fountain Valley. Um, it, the, the name of the city or the, you know, the, the, the phrase is uh, it's a nice place to live. And it really is, um, like four miles from the beach. Um, and growing up with a big family like that meant that we're playing a lot of sports and had jobs, uh, delivering newspapers and my family had a donut shop. So I was, uh, always working and that definitely kind of built the entrepreneurial uh, itch and uh, work ethic. And also, though, we were always active uh, as a family, even though it was a big family. Um, parents were always taking us out to the desert for hiking and also just friends that they had out there and just fun stuff that you do then, but you don't do now, like shooting BB guns at your brothers and, and, and uh, fun adventures like that. And also... Uh, a lot of surfing uh, since, you know, like I said, we're pretty close to the beach, about four miles. So just always riding our bikes to the beach with my buddies. And um, yeah, that, that was That's childhood awesome. growing up. 
how do you get into surfing? Was it probably one of those communities? It's it's what all the kids do. But was it something that your parents taught you, or your friends taught you, or what was that spark to kind of get you into that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was just what our friends did. Um, one of my buddies, his dad lived uh, like a quarter mile from the beach, like in an RV park, but like literally right across from uh, PCH. And so he was out there quite a bit and then just all the other friends. And it was also uh, admittedly kind of a cool thing to do. So if you're 12, you know, you wanted to surf instead of, uh, I've, I mean, I played, we played all the sports. I played tackle football, uh, baseball, basketball. So I did all of them. Um, but surfing, it was just, there's a lot of freedom to surfing, especially then I think it's just different than now because everybody's kind of shelled around in the cars. And back then we were just, you know, we'd wake up and we'd be gone the whole day. We'd go to the beach, we'd bring some wood, start a fire afterwards because the wetsuits were terrible back then and we'd be freezing. And uh, all of our friends did it. And, um, you know, just became a fun thing to hang out with your, with your buddies out in the water. Yeah. So when you were saying how the wetsuits were terrible back then, I know that the technology in, in pretty much every sport has just gotten leagues, leagues better in the past 10 years. But uh, was surfing still sort of relatively new back then? And what was the surfing community like? Yeah, no, it was, um, I mean, let's see. So we're talking about the early 80s. And I think surfing was popularized like in the 60s or 70s, I mean, before my time. But I, so by the 80s. It's definitely one of the older ones for sure in terms of sports. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, we were skateboarding, you know, for, we had a half pipe in my buddy's backyard. So we did all of those things, which is kind of like, a, you know, they're affiliated and related to surfing. But it was, um, I mean, all the technology was there. It's just the wetsuits were not good. There was, we're, we're all wearing cheap Alita wetsuits. That's, that was a uh, Australian brand, I think, back then. And they've, they've come a long way now. But yeah, that was, that was part of it. Yeah, especially on the West Coast, that water gets cold. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking... So it's still, even in Southern California, I mean, in the winter, you uh, could be even low 50s, but usually mid to upper 50s. And with a uh, cold wind going, it's, it's, it's chilly. Yeah, that takes definitely takes some dedication to to go practice and, and do that a lot in, in those kind of conditions. But, but yeah. yeah, that's that's awesome. So was uh did any of the rest of your family surf as well, or was it really just you and your friends? You know, it was uh they everybody was into sports. So it really that that is an interesting question. I never really thought about that. But my younger one of my younger brothers did surf for a time. He never got into it. So I guess I'm I'm really the only one. But I had a cousin um who's a really good surfer, traveled all over the world surfboards. So he was definitely, um, you know, somebody that I'd look up to at, the, at that time. And, and, you know, he made boards for me. So I think that as far as the family goes, he was, he was like a really, really good surfer still is. So, but yeah, not in my immediate family It's more, a lot of other sports, you know, a lot of track and field and, and, uh, football and, uh, basketball. Yeah. And, and you said you had a kind of a passion for entrepreneurship since young age as well. Was, was there any connection between some of the lessons that you learned in surfing and sports and some of those early entrepreneur, you know, entrepreneurial uh, lessons that you learned as well? Yeah, I, for sure. I think sports is, and, and even the outdoors. So like they're two separate things, you know, cause sports can be really competitive in the outdoors. Um, usually if I'm going outdoors, it's to not be competitive, right? It's to enjoy the outdoors and challenge myself, but not in a competitive way against somebody else. But I think um, both of them have, uh, they force you to push through uh, challenges and hardships and also to stick to things. And I think that's important in entrepreneurship because um, 
it it nothing ever happens overnight like you know the the cliche about the overnight success so it it takes a long time and i think um that that's where sports can play its part and, and even the outdoors as well absolutely yeah dedication and persistence that's that's the key i think for both sports and entrepreneurship and yeah for sure when kind of when you were in in the early days of of both of those things what did you think you wanted to do when when you were in school you know whether it was middle school or high school at that point did you have a any real particular you know big dreams of doing a certain uh thing uh you know afterwards or kind of what was the mindset academically of what you were interested in and what what you wanted to do so I, I was not that good of a student in high school. I was like, not like a bad student probably. And, uh, you know, I mean, of course I made it through high school. I took a while to graduate college, but then eventually I was, you know, um, you know, Dean's list and, and did really, really well once I kind of put my head to it. But, um, early, like in high school, yeah, I, I wasn't, um, honestly, I, I didn't have a lot of confidence back then, you know? So I think, and even though um, I grew up in a great family and everything, but my parents didn't really push us in school. They kind of, in a good way, they kind of let us figure it out. You know, they didn't put all this pressure that you had to go to a good school. So, so I, but at the same time, I wasn't, um, you know, living up to the person I should have been. So I didn't have, I think, to, you know, long answer, but I basically the answer would be that I didn't have a clear um, vision of the future. And also was, I just wanted to, hope and find a way to get a good job and be successful. Like it, it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it definitely didn't have the confidence that I, that I have now. Yeah. So with kind of with that, uh, that thought process, what did you end up, uh, kind of studying in, in college and going into and, um, kind of what, what were some of the early days of, uh, of kind of the, the career afterwards? Yeah. So, so right after high school, what I did is I, I traveled and surfed a lot in, Baja in, in Mexico. So I spent... And that was right after so, college or right after uh, high school, right? Right after high school. And I, I had a Jeep. We were going down there all the time. And we were doing stuff that, you know, probably isn't good to do now because you hear all these crazy stories, but we were just sleeping on the beach and and uh, going to just a lot of fun. It was, it was so yeah, much fun. Just, yeah, it was, was it, it was amazing. Was it a gap year or was it just the summer before college or you know, well, how much time I, did you do that? <laughs> I turned it into a gap year. It, it was, it was, a, <laughs> right. it was, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just went to Mexico. I, I didn't spend the whole time. These are back and forth trips, you know, and just a lot of them. So, uh, you know, cause it, 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 for people who, you know, it's part of the fun of surfing, just like any other adventure, you know, when you travel that that's the, traveling and getting to the place is half the fun. And, uh, because of that, I didn't like have a clear vision of what I wanted to do in college. I just wasn't as focused. So when I got into college, I, um, I like science. So I, you know, just started, I I was like, all right, I'm going to be a doctor. So I started taking all of these, you know, biology, chemistry, calculus, anatomy, physiology, but again, I wasn't really focused. And, um, by the time I figured everything out, I, I worked at a hospital and I'm like, I don't know. And I talked to a lot of doctors and, and a lot of them, just to be honest, it steered me away from it. And uh, so then I ended up uh, finishing with a microbiology degree, but not heading off to med school. Also, just because, I mean, I was a good student, but I didn't know, I wasn't sure if I could dedicate another four years of my life. I wasn't at that point. And I, I got a job as a hazardous waste scientist um, out of school. So that, that's what I did for a couple of years before I kind of got back into, um, before I started New Air. 
You know, well, it's it's no wonder when talking to a bunch of doctors, if you you know had a choice between surfing in Mexico and going to med school, that's that's an easy choice. But <laughs> I know exactly. I know I miss those days. It's, it's a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. With um, to kind of rewind a little bit before you went to college, um, did you get any pushback from parents or friends to take that year and go to Mexico? And did that help you to figure out just a little bit more about who you are and what you value and what you want to do? Yeah. And also it wasn't like, you know, when you think about it, it wasn't like a planned year. It was just, I graduated high school, didn't know what I wanted to do. Took a couple classes at the JC and in between was traveling to Mexico that, you know, and I would miss a week and then come back and catch up. It would be that type of a, a situation. So it was, um, I, I actually didn't get a lot of pushback. I had, um, what, what I did is I, I still would be working in between. So I was a pool guy. I was, I was, you know, had a, a a pool right about that time. I started my own pool service, and that paid my way through college. So I was, you know, surfing in Mexico, working for somebody else. Came back, said, "Okay, I know how to do all this stuff. I can just do it myself." And um, kind of actually, then when I did go to college, grew that pool business and um, basically paid for my college that way. So that's that, but I didn't get a lot of pushback just because I think my parents were, you know, the way they live is they're more interested in, Hey, you know, do you have good character? Do you have a good work ethic? You know, are you a good human being? It wasn't like, you know, you got to go to this top college that, that, that just wasn't the way. That's great. Well, the things that they focused on seem to be the things that, that really are what matter really what's important. Yep. Yep. For sure. So you said that you ended up starting that first company while in college. What was what was the story there? Yeah. So well, it was it was a pool service business. Um, it's a great industry to be in. I, I love it. Um, not, obviously, not doing it now, but it was it, the company was called Pool Heaven. Uh, ran it, grew it, uh, paid for school, and basically, what you're doing is you're servicing pools and you're repairing. Um, you know anything that can go wrong with the pool. You're not building a pool. That that's totally different. That's pool construction. But um, yeah, it's just, you have a pool route. So you got, you know, 20 pools a day that you got to kind of uh, zoom around town and, and hit each pool. And after a lot of wind or a lot of storm, it's kind of a nightmare because you're cleaning up a, a, a foot of leaves at the bottom of a pool. But, but it ends up being great because, you know, you walk around in sandals and a tank top and, and you clean pools and you make your own schedule. And then I actually ended up selling it to a buddy when I got out of college and he still runs it today. So it's 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 really awesome actually to see. I mean, he's he's done great things with the companies. You know, twenty years later here, that's awesome. So, did did you know anything about pool service before you got into that? Other than maybe that you know an initial job, or how, how did you come to start a company in that? Yeah, um, well, I was and yeah, I learned it from that job, but I was pretty mechanical because growing up through high school, I was in auto class and I had rebuilt. I had a couple. I had a. Um, 72 El Camino rebuilt that thing from scratch. And I had a couple of friends that were into, into cars as well. So, you know, I'd kind of gone through a whole engine as far as, uh, you know, most parts of the engine, not, you know, everything, but I be, had become pretty mechanical, um, in having to figure out how to build an engine and also work in other cars as well. So by the time I was doing pools, it's actually not that hard. I mean, there's, there's some electrical work you have to know, you have to know some PVC plumbing and then some basic, uh, chemistry, and you put those three together and, and you can get the job done. That's awesome. Well, yeah, it, it's it's really amazing to see what, what you can do when, when you just combine a kind of a certain set of skills. But you know, in yep. a, as that paid for college, um, did kind of looking back now, did you ever think that 
that was really more than just a way to pay for college and that entrepreneurial spirit was really what you were what was the most passionate about and kind of when did you really um kind of switch gears from that kind of uh medicine route back into entrepreneurship yeah see the thing is is uh you know entrepreneurial like when people say that word and i think a lot of people love to build things you know i do too but there's a flip side of it. Like, why are young people getting into entrepreneurship? And, you know, because at that time I was, you know, probably, um, I mean, I was, you know, college age and then afterwards worked and then then started New Air. But it, it's also because you have freedom. You know, that I think that's the, for me, that was the big driving force. If Hopefully that kind of answers the question for you're sure. looking for. But yeah. yeah, it was about, it was about saying, hey, you know, I can do all these things myself at my own time. And, and I, sometimes I like to do things really fast so then I can, you know, have my own time later. And I think that was the most alluring part was was the freedom. So I I actually had a somewhat similar story where I was pre med in college as well, and and by the time I got to the end of that track and and started actually working and shadowing some uh, working with and shadowing some doctors, I realized that that lifestyle is uh, kind of in the context of the kind of discussion around maximizing your freedom is definitely not a freedom maximizer with how much time you have to spend, um, kind of going through that process. Uh, what, yeah. Is it, you kind of find a similar thing and, and what eventually sort of took you away from that world after that first job that you got after college? Yeah. And, and I have a good buddy who's a surgeon and he, he does amazing work. I mean, the first thing is like, you know, doctors and teachers, like they're doing great work. So we need people like that who absolutely who are yeah. you know saving people and teaching people and it's but at the same time um, I was like a little ADD like it wasn't I I just couldn't sit around and do something in one place for that long and uh, and also have that dedication and and then I think back then it was probably even better and still doctors were weary of it now with all the regulations you know you talk to doctors now a lot of them are going to private practice and. And they don't want to be involved in insurance and the lawsuits are out of control and right. yeah, it's crazy. The patient complaints. It's, it, it's, it's really can be tough and discouraging for some of them. Yeah. It, it really seems like it's gotten a lot worse. I, uh, I had a similar experience where a lot of doctors I talked to told me to not go into medicine as well. And, and that was, oh, wow. um, that was a while ago. So it, it's probably gotten even worse since then, but yeah. It makes so, you think when you hear that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, so when, after that uh, kind of first job in college, what were you doing, um, and what kind of route did that kind of direct your interest in? So I was uh, basically working to clean up the groundwater. So we were, I was a hazardous waste. So you're saying at the first job, what, what I was doing was a hazardous waste right, scientist. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, have you ever seen the movie um, Aaron Brockovich? I don't know if you've it's it's a it's a movie. So. Yeah, it's it's a pretty kind of a famous movie actually, but it's about um, Chrome Six contamination from PG and E in some water out in the desert. And I literally worked on that same case, except it was a different PG and E plant, and uh, they used the Chrome Six. You know, it ended up being a cancer causing. Um, uh, chemical and they used it, I think in some cooling towers or something like that. And, uh, yeah. And so, I mean, the stuff we were doing had great intention, you know, you have this groundwater that's full of, uh, VOCs or Chrome six or something like that. And then, and then they got to kind of remediate or they got to make sure it's not getting pumped into wells and they got to kind of know where the plume is going and you're working with geologists and you're working with private industry, but 
The problem is it's a government job. So you have all these, nothing moved, you know? And it was, again, very slow and frustrating. And with all the regulations, um, it just, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't stimulating. How about that? As a, as a key word to think about, you know, it wasn't something you go every day and, and you're really stimulated. It was the opposite, you know? And so did that for a couple of years and, and actually some great people working there. So, uh, but it just wasn't for me. And, um, saw my brother started an online business and this about 2001 young guy selling online, making a, a ton of money, um, starting a business from scratch. And I'm like, Whoa, that sounds pretty fun. So that's, that, that's what got me looking at that again. So when, when you kind of got inspired by what your brother was doing in, in terms of creating company and, and selling online, did you start to have some ideas kind of, uh, kind of swirling around in your head and where did the initial idea for new air originally come from? And how did you, how did you start the process from kind of putting that into place, um, from your previous job as that hazardous waste scientist? Yeah. I mean, the, the, Really quickly, back then, Yahoo would show the most search terms on the bottom of its homepage. And Yahoo back then was, was this is 2001, or let's say Yahoo was a big deal. And it still is now, but it was like, you know, a lot bigger than Google back then. So it showed the top searches and the number three search in the summer was portable air conditioner. And I, and I thought, well, I should get into that category because there's a lot of demand or interest in that category. I didn't know anything about SEO. And I just um, started with that idea. I didn't know anything about the business, anybody in the business. I, I basically, first person I called them was Granger. They're you know, a huge industrial company, or not industrial, but like a kind of a do-it-yourself type of company that sells tools and machinery that's needed. And uh, that, that's where I started. Interesting. <laughs> was it... Was it because that was a just really hot demand thing at the time, or was it a really hot summer? Or what do you think? Why do you think that was in one of the top three search terms? And, and was that a pretty consistent thing as you saw throughout the years, or just that one year? Yeah, no, it continued definitely. Portable air conditioners is a big category, um, but yeah, I think it was probably really hot for sure because it's a very seasonal category, um, and. I think the other thing was back then a lot of stuff wasn't online. This is after the bust, and it was there was a little bit of a a, a void online. So, a lot of these, you know, it, it's kind of like it is today, where like electronics are the first things that made it online. People were buying computers and RAM and motherboards and all that. But like, if you're going to buy, you know, an appliance or HVAC products, the companies that were selling online were not that strong. And so it was actually a nice place to start and and build a business and compete because um, the competition just wasn't as strong as the companies that are selling the electronics. Uh, there's a lot more. Uh, it's just the internet kind of catered to that those industries. Interesting. So did at the time did you know that much about selling online, or did you really have to kind of teach yourself everything that there is to know to get started? And how do you learn that? Yeah, I didn't know anything. So started. Uh, so again, I'm working and my wife is at home. We had two kids. And what I would do is, so I learned, I learned some from my little brother because he was, you know, learned about SEO. And then I would just study it at night. You know, I just figure it out. Built, we built our own site. Back then we built what's called a, a Yahoo site. So in, in Yahoo had a platform where they, you, or Yahoo, it's called the Yahoo store. And you, you know, people could kind of code on the back end of the store. So, you know, you go out and find a somebody who could code in whatever language it was written in, some proprietary language. And you kind of, un, then you learn like, hey, what, 
you know, what are the, what, what's a meta tag, you know, what's an H1 tag. And, and you just basically, and then, then started, I mean, down the road, I started going to different trade shows and learned all about SEO. But back then you just kind of figure it out and, and you understand it's a very basic con- a concept. You know, you want to show up for a certain keywords. Okay. What are the drivers to get you to show up for those words and what actions do you have to take? And you just kind of, uh, learn it along the way. Yeah. And, and with SEO, it, you know, nowadays it, it definitely takes a while to rank because there's, there's so many other things that are competing for that search term on Google. But back then did, did it take a while to start taking off or did you have, you know, immediate success with it? Yeah. I mean, back then was like the wild west. So there's all kinds of ways, you know, people would cheat and there's all kinds of things you could do. So it it was much quicker. Um, it, it was quicker because right now, there's more on-page things you could do back then versus now. Now everything is, you know, what you call like off-page. Like all the signals are coming from social or from links and very little of it has to do with your on-page. I mean, some of it does. You have to have kind of your blocking and tackling done. But beyond that, it's what's happening off-page. What are people saying about you? Well, back then there was a lot less of that. And that takes a long time to build that off page, by the way, you know, so to build this network of links and social where people are talking about you and, or your company or a keyword, it takes a long time. So it's way, it takes longer now, but the benefit is I think it's stickier, like that the results aren't shuffling as much as they were back then. Cause you could just be gone the next day back then, you know, cause it's some, somebody, somebody else would come and hack something or black hat or, or they would, you know, drop a, bunch of bad links on your site or point them to you because there's an algorithm change that took into account the quality of links being pointed to you. So they would point bad ones to you and knock you down. And there's, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that, you know, happened then that, that isn't happening now. Interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating with, with all those things that were going on, was this something that you jumped into full time right from the beginning? Or did you try to balance getting started with this with your original kind of day job? Yeah, so I was uh, so for about six months we did both. So we're so we're building this company. My you know my wife was like answering calls during the day. We started selling the portable air conditioners, but also um, some heaters and also thermostats. Believe it or not, programmable thermostats were a big deal because people were going from the dial thermostat, which has kind of come back in vogue, by the way, which is kind of funny. But they were going from the dial to a Honeywell programmable thermostat, and we were just selling like a ton of those things online. And um, she would be getting calls about it during the day. I'd be working, I'd come home and I'd build out the site further and just kind of repeat. And probably did that for like about six months or so before uh, the business you know, grew to the point where I could uh, quit the job. But after six months, it was, it was enough to the point where it could um, kind of entice you to, to you know, leave that security blanket behind and, and go full force into it. And what was that, that step like? Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, it, it's always been. We've never been prepared, you know. That's like that's just how we've kind of always lived our life. It's just you just you just take that jump, basically. How about that, you know? But um, yeah, I mean, it's this step was kind of crazy, probably because we actually were just buying a house, so we are in a condo, two kids, uh, and we were just buying a house, and the house escrow had to take it had to go long so we sold our condo and we didn't have a house to go into because the the seller um you know they had to live there for like 
three more, three more months. And so we had to move into my mom's house. So we were living in, in my mom's house with a couple of kids and, and running the business. It was, it was crazy. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was funny. What was what were those early days of the company like? And you know, what were some of the hurdles you had to jump over um and kind of some of the things you had to to fix that that broke? Oh geez. Every day. Um, because you know, you're because I, I didn't have even though I, you know, had the pool business and stuff, it it it's a different kind of business. I didn't, you know, understand not that it's hard to understand, but I mean, I didn't understand invoicing you know, and just basic things like that, you know, just because it's just different terminology you're using when you're running a pool business. So just very basic terminology, you just, you're just fixing stuff and getting paid. And so we had to set up all these systems, which, you know, was not that great at the beginning, like a lot of companies. And then, um, you know, we're, you're buying more and more inventory. So we moved, I, I think we've probably moved warehouses like to, to date, we've probably moved six or seven times, you know, since 2002. So we're every couple of years you're having to move every, you know, you're having to invest in new equipment and you're having to learn how to hire people, learn how to train it. And we made plenty of mistakes along the way. Um, you know, we had like, I'd be at, at still at the early days, we were shipping stuff. I'd be at work. We'd have 30 big packages going out. And the UPS guy would come, you know, I'll, I never forget this. He would come and he would make my wife load the car. <laughs> I know, I, I, yeah. So, so the first time FedEx came in and, you know, to quote us and, they, and uh, this guy, Steve, our first FedEx rep, and he brought a bunch of coffee. I'm like, I'm, I'm switching over to you guys. <laughs> I know UPS is a great company. It's just like that driver on our route. He was just such a union guy and, and didn't want to lift a finger. But those are just funny stories like that, you know, of, of uh, growing pains. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's always fascinating to hear just the early day stories of, of companies. Cause there's so many funny little things that, that happen that people don't really realize. Um, were there yeah, any just really hard times that you had to push through and kind of, how do you get past that adversity? Yeah. I mean, tons of them. There's, uh, I mean, this year, cause you have tariffs. So it's this year's, uh, for anybody with a product company, it's, it's a really, really challenging year. But, um, yeah, I mean, in 2000, 12 and 13, um, companies doing great, but what happened was, uh, and, and there are many more along the way, by the way, you know, there was the recession in 2008 and, and so many moves, but in 2012 and 13, Amazon and everybody else started really dominating the organic rankings. So people who are running a, a dot com website direct to consumer, it was way easier up until about that time. And at that time, it got way more challenging. Like you had to have scale to win. You couldn't just be back in the day. You could just resell other people's products. It, that hit, that game is totally changed. Now you got to have your own product. You got to be really providing value to the customer. And that big shift happened about 2012 and 2013. And at that time we were selling our brand, but also about 400 other brands. We had a lot of SKUs. So from that time, we basically cut down all of those other vendors to the point now where we don't sell any, anybody's product except our brand. And, um, you know, there's, that's a challenging time because we changed our whole business model. And then we went from direct to consumer to also selling into home depot.com, wayfair.com, Amazon. We had sold Amazon the whole time, but, but selling into these other channels kind of as a, a wholesaler. So it's a totally different business model. So that was a, it was a challenging time. We had to get a different team. We never had a sales team before, you know, cause it was an online business and now we had to get a sales team. So, um, and then I had to learn so much about that because that's, that's just something I hadn't done. So, um, definitely a, a big learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a lot of people, um, 
that are on the outside uh, that always have wanted to start their own business sometimes uh, see the good things, but they don't necessarily see the bad things. And a thing that's really important to keep in mind uh, for anyone who wants to start a business is that you know the problems never stop; they just grow with scale. And there's never really a point where you uh, you know I think a lot of people think that oh we get to a certain point and you know, we just hired our first employee or we just hired our first ten employees or got our first second office and uh, people think that you know once we hit this milestone um, you know we're we're good and we've gotten through the problems but just like you said with this year even well into the uh, growth and maturity of the business uh, you know things like the tariffs of this year come come up and you know what advice would you give to to just being able to push through these challenges and constantly navigate anything that happens to to come up and be able to push through that yeah i mean well first of all you hit the nail on the head marshall so and and uh and and so that's 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 good that you've uh, you've learned that one already. But it it took me too long to learn it, you know. And even my accountant told me, Luke, you know, because one time I'm like, man, what about this? Or, or you know, I gotta you know deal with this. And it's like as you get bigger, become you become a target, you know, for whatever unscrupulous things happen out there. And and there's plenty of them in California. And he's like, you know, Luke, that's just that's a part of business. And he's like, just make sure your margins are are up there. So making sure you're getting paid like you should be getting paid is um, is probably the number one thing I would say. You know, making sure you're charging enough and you're charging in accordance with the value that you're delivering, which can be tough sometimes in, in uh, commodity and easily compared businesses, you know, and so for that reason, try to uh, not have an easily comparable business and try to have a unique value proposition. But make sure you're getting paid a lot more than probably a young entrepreneur thinks they should be getting paid. And that's probably the number one place to start. That's that's really good advice. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I think a lot of people are. Uh, it's very easy to get just super dedicated and passionate about what you're doing, and take a just significant price cut in what you could be earning or what you maybe would be earning in another job to keep your business going. But um, there's definitely a difference between startup profitability and, you know, real profitability, you know, the difference between not paying yourself and and paying yourself. And, um, uh, you know, the faster you can get to that point, definitely the, you know, the better. Um, And is um, kind of, is that something that you, you kind of discovered early on and, and got started with, or was there ever kind of a time when you sort of forego that salary for a while to, put it into growth or to support other aspects of the business? And how do you navigate the balance between that? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good question. It's, so it's a little different. We're selling products. And so you got to make sure, you know, of course there's margins on products and margins on services. I think most people give up too much on the service side. Uh, sometimes on products, there's, you know, it's easier to figure it out. Um, you know, you have your cost of good and you know what your other costs involved are. And then you go out to market and and you kind of know you're going to have a certain margin and there's variable costs and advertising and stuff. Uh, but you know, as a private business, you know, my take is you you have to be profitable every year. So even if you're going through growth, just because you're, you know, one misnomer is people say, well, you know, I'm re, uh, did you make any profits? No, because I was reinvesting. Um, I mean, look, this year, okay, that that's probably true for a lot of companies because of tariffs. Those will just you know eat you alive. But in a typical year, if you're reinvesting, you you still should be profitable. It's just that you're putting your profits into the company. It's two totally different things. You know what I mean? It's it's because otherwise you're just overspending. That that's that's a different word for reinvesting, right? <laughs> but 
Yeah. So, so you still could be profitable, but I think on the service side, what happens is that people can unfortunately kind of get themselves a glorified job, you know? So it's, if it's a business, then, you know, the value that you're creating to, for your clients um, and then what you're charging should kind of be in equilibrium. And otherwise you're kind of just, you're, you, you're then getting a job, but it's a 24 seven job instead of one that you can leave at five or six o'clock. So exactly. Yeah. yeah. If, if, if the goal and the purpose is to maximize freedom, like we were talking about earlier, then sometimes it goes the opposite way and you work, uh, there, there's actually a great quote that my friend told me that I thought was hilarious the other day where entrepreneurs are the only people crazy enough to get paid to work longer hours. Uh, sorry, oh, to yeah. get paid less to work longer hours. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Hey, we've all done it. We've all done it. So yeah, it's, that's so true. But, um, to, to kind of talk about some of the things we were talking about earlier on and go back to, you know, how that passion for, uh, surfing and outdoor adventure kind of spurred that mindset of adaptability. Um, you've always been, you know, extremely adventurous and athletic person. Have you found ways to use that passion for outdoor adventure as a way to build that mindset that you really need for innovation and adaptability of being able to uh, train yourself through those things to be able to navigate any any challenge or adversity that comes up? And what's that connection look like for you and in your personal life and work life? Yeah. Um, I, I wish I could say yes to that question like that. I, you know, I had it like all planned out like that. Um, I'd be giving myself way too much credit. Um, I usually, as far as the connection, if, if we're talking about the connection, it, you can look at it two ways. Number one, um, I've been just you know fortunate and blessed enough that on some of the travel, and especially a lot more going forward as my kids get older, I can take the kids with me. So now that isn't say backwoods adventure, but it's still adventure. You know, when you're getting on an airplane, you're going to a new city, you get to explore some things. So a little bit of that um, I can build into the business. And, and then as far as like the, um, the outdoors and the sports, I, you know, I wish I, that, you know, it's, it could be looked at as like a class and I've used that information to kind of build the business, but it's more of like, um, it's just something I love to do, you know, so it's, it's a stress break. And also I just like to be healthy. And so, you know, this morning I, I went to the gym and the gym is, in, it, it, I never thought I would actually be going to the gym because I, I didn't like indoor places like the gym. But you know what? I go in there. I'm, I'm like 30 minutes. I'm in and out of that thing. And if, if I can't surf, then I can go to the gym for 30 minutes. But uh, you know, surfing is different, I, th- I feel, than almost any other sport. I don't know, Marshall. You do, you do, I know you do a lot of adventures. But the thing about surfing is it, it, it's one of those things where people who are really into it, if the waves are good and you can't surf it can base almost make you depressed. Like it's, it's something that is deeper inside of you. I feel than like a lot of other sports, you know, where, Oh, I can just go shoot hoops tomorrow. You know, if I didn't get it today, but surfing is just so much different because the elements have to come together. And, um, when it's on, you, you kind of have to get there. And, uh, so I don't know, it's, it's hard, you know, there's a saying only a surfer knows the feeling, but it's, it's, um, kind of hard to explain to, other people. Yeah, no, I totally understand. There was actually, um, uh, some really, really great research, um, and books, uh, 
that were that were uh, written by a guy named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who kind of coined the term oh, yeah. "flow" and "flow states" uh, from his experience with with surfing. And I I found it fascinating to compare the two in terms of using action adventure sports as a gateway to find that flow state. For anyone who hasn't heard of that terminology, flow state before, it's whenever you've been working on a project you're so excited by uh, that you all of a sudden realize it's dinner time and you haven't eaten that day. Uh, you know That's because you've been locked in a very uh, excited, concentrated flow state where you're at your peak performance the entire time. And uh, his research with surfing um, just points a lot of parallels between using surfing and all kinds of action adventure sports as a really quick gateway into that flow state. You know, When you finally catch that perfect wave, while you're in the wave, you're completely 100% concentrated on that one thing and nothing else matters and you're locked into that flow state and immediately as soon as you get into that environment and i think surfing along with a lot of other things um can put you in that state uh super fast which has a ton of positive impact in entrepreneurship and just in developing a mindset of innovation overall which i'm sure you've probably seen uh through a lot of the things that you've navigated in business and entrepreneurship as as well but um but yeah how how has that kind of flow state resonated with you throughout your career yeah and i know exactly what you're and i'm familiar with the with those writings and and it's a it's a def it's a it's a great uh, concept and a, and a great idea. And, and surfing and surfing is like, you know, you remember you only up on a wave for usually less than a minute. Right. And then you're paddling or sitting in the water most of the time. Then you're quickly up on a wave. So it's like a really, it's very intense, you know, that burst of, okay, you know, you, you kind of have to be right at the right place to catch the wave and, and then ride it. And then, then you go back out and do it again. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, it's like the uh, office, out of the office, you know, you have time to think or you go with friends and, and you can bounce ideas off them. So that, that that's what it comes into. And I also, I got into mountain biking. I did that a lot. And uh, I would say that's another, it, it does have a lot of similarities. And for, because when you're grinding up a hill, you get into that flow, you know, because you're, you're, it's like, it become painful. But then after a while, maybe like the same thing as like a marathon runner, but you're just like, you're just in that flow and you're, you're kind of grinding up a hill. And uh, you get that similar uh, sensation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the most powerful things with flow states is its ability to make you sort of unconsciously adaptable. No matter what challenge or situation comes up in front of you, you just instantly respond to it in the way that's most effective, sometimes without even realizing that that you're doing that. And I think that that skill is extremely important in business and entrepreneurship as well. And it seems like you did a really great job of uh, adapting to different things and challenges that came up. One in particular, I'd love to, uh, to learn a little bit more about. It seems like at first, um, it was very much focused as a B2C business, but once Amazon and things like that started popping up and the need sort of switched, um, how was that sort of transition into starting to work a little bit more with B2B and selling to some of these really big suppliers like you know Home Depot, like we talked about before? And how did you get to be such an expert in that, um, that sale to some of those big companies as a supplier? Yeah. Um, so, um, God, what is the guy's name? Is the past CEO of Intel? Um, 
Um, uh, you'll look it up after this interview, but he wrote a book called Only the Paranoid Survive and uh, another book about management, like an incredible CEO. Uh, he's since passed on, but uh, left some great books and a legacy at Intel. But anyways, I only bring up that book because I think, um, I mean, there's definitely probably a lot, uh, maybe more thoughtful people than I am in entrepreneurship. But I think one thing about me is, you know, my mind's always running and uh, and that can be a problem, but it's also helps when there's big challenges like the kind of the one you brought up, you know, so it's just always going, you're all, you know, always thinking of the next thing. And what happened in that case was I kind of, I, for the most of the time I, I, I was saying to myself, I don't want to get into wholesale, meaning selling my brand to another retailer for them to then sell to the customer. I don't want to get into it because I was thinking the margins would be worse. Okay. I mean, there's going to be, they're going to be in the middle of the customer, uh, you know, uh, therefore the margins must be worse than I, with my direct connection to the customer. But I, so what I did is I started up a new company and we brought out about 10 products and I, I, I separated a team of two people and we wrote a business plan and we started the, uh, the new company to sell into those retailers. And, and that new company is called Luma Comfort. And within um, a year from the very beginning, but probably, you know, because it takes a while to get your product. So you're doing your business plan, you're setting up accounts, you don't know anything about terms, you're just like totally winging it. And so quickly it was apparent that that was a great path to go. Um, for a couple of reasons I can tell you, but, but it, it, it was just right away. It was obvious. And then once you're inside of those accounts, uh, you know, my thing is I like to get in the weeds and learn every little thing about how the machine works. And that's kind of how we've become really proficient in it. You know, it's, you don't, you don't want to, um, I know that, uh, you know, there's a big debate for, you know, just an all, you know, always a debate of how deep a CEO should get into the business, you know, should, and should they be more strategic? And I'm probably at fault for not, um, you know, getting outside of the office enough, like to, to, I'm too much in the weeds. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of value because there's, um, when you maximize something, it could be like a 10x increase instead of just a 1x or a 2x. You know, it's, there's so much sometimes when you get into an account, you really understand all the levers. And so that's what we found with like Home Depot.com, Wafer.com, and those are, and, you know, Walmart and Lowe's and all these, you know, Best Buys. Like there's all these other places you could sell on, not just Amazon. And um, they're great partners to work with. So uh, that kind of uh, is, and then basically shifted the whole company that direction. And and the reason that it can be just as profitable or more profitable is because your advertising spend, which is a huge component of a direct consumer company, can go to, you know well below five percent, well below two percent. It can go really, really tiny. So on most company, on a, most product companies, you're having to spend quite a bit to advertise. I mean, some companies are spending, you know. Thirty percent of their expense line is going to be advertising. You know, others might be ten percent. But the point is, yeah, you don't have a middle person, but you've got a, an advertising budget that's massive, and and you're not actually getting uh, reoccurring sales. You know, your lifetime value is not very big. You're not getting repeat orders. You're getting one order. You're paying for that customer every single time. Whereas Home Depot's not doing that, they're paying for the customer once, and then that customer's coming back. You know, just like Amazon is able to do. So they've got a totally different um, P and L. 
as far as how they look at advertising. They still spend a boatload on advertising, but they're doing it now for the brands that are on their website. So it's it's a different engagement and a different relationship um, with with uh, you know you got two customers. You got the retailer and you got the end customer, and you got to just uh, understand them both. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's fascinating. How how long ago did you make that shift, and how has that sort of changed the direction of the company? Yeah, so that was in 2013, 2012, 2013. And it went from 100% of our sales direct to consumer. And every year that decreased as our wholesale percentage went up. We, do, we call it B2B. So we call the the uh, B2C went down every year. The B2B went up. And I know you, I know companies want a big B2C. So, but what, but it wasn't always healthy because we were selling other people's products. The margins weren't that great. So uh, we kind of cannibalized it, built the B2B side, and now have regrown the B2C, but it's still, you know, like 5% or so of company. So it's totally changed from 100% to now 5%, but it's a, it's a growing 5%. It's healthy, it's, it, and it's, um, we're building out the website, newera.com. That's awesome. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know what those business acronyms are, you know, B2C is business to consumer, uh, or lazy way of writing it. Uh, B2B is business to business. And uh, we at Vestigo actually have a very similar story of starting out 100% B2C, and now we're pretty much 100% B2B. Um, but, um, oh, wow. That's but yeah, cool. so are, are you trying to bring back that B2C side of the company a little bit more now? Um, we're doing it, but only profitably. So we're not doing it in a way that's going to, um, I mean, it, it, how I look at it, it's another channel, right? You know, we sell into Amazon, we sell to Home Depot and we sell direct. And why wouldn't we, you know, cause people are going to our site to learn about the products. And then of course they'll leave maybe and go to a partner site, but why not, uh, you know, speak directly to the customer if they're on our site. And, and if we're not going to outcompete, we'll offer other things. We can offer add-on gifts and different warranties, um, but we're not going to offer lower price. So there's other value that we'll give to the, to the consumer that they might want instead. And uh, yeah, it, so for the first couple of years, we didn't sell at all. After I made this transition to B2B, we didn't sell it all on newair.com because we said, oh, wow, I mean, I, I think our partners wouldn't like it. But come to find out, they don't care because they're they're huge. You know, we're just like a, a dot in the sand. So, um, so I think I encourage, um, you know, every product um, website who is in our B two B model to also sell direct. They don't have to invest a lot of money in it. And now you could do it cheaper than ever with uh, Shopify. So er- everything is out there now. There's like no excuses for <laughs> for companies not to sell direct because um, you're pretty much one good e-commerce manager and a Shopify account away from um, having a, a, another channel. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's so true. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably don't realize that as well. But yeah, you've done you've done an awesome job of that. Um, in terms of kind of looking back on where you are now and all the things that you've had to kind of go through, uh, just kind of generally in terms of starting a business, running the business, and then adapting throughout that process, what advice would you give yourself uh, if you can go back and talk to the the first year of starting version of yourself and give yourself one piece of advice. What do you think that advice would be? Oh man, it's uh, unfortunately, I know there's all these things I know now that I didn't then I, I would, I would probably say to, uh, be more narrowly focused on products to bring, um, more, um, uh, less commoditized, more valuable products to market with and also 
with higher margins at the same time and just build the business around that, which is what we're doing now. But along the way, you know, when you have a, a you know, 10 balls in the air and, and, and essentially what that means, by the way, to just make it, because I know it's an obvious thing to say, but what it means is to be very close to the factory, essentially is what that is, is, is the point of that. You know, the closer you are, the better you understand the product, the better you can make tweaks and, and really be product first versus uh, marketing first or sales first. I, I think that's a, a great place to For start. For sure. Yeah, that's that's so important. And sort of on that note, on really being product first, um, are are there any things you're working on uh, right now from a product standpoint that you're really excited about that are you know either just coming out or ideas for the future uh, or anything that's just really on the top of your mind that you're excited to share? Oh yeah, yeah, a ton of stuff. I mean, because our team just got back from China and we have deep relationships with it's, you know, 20 factories over there. And, and, um, so there's so many good things happening. I mean, you have the tariffs, but then there's so many good things happening as well. And we're looking, um, I mean, we have partners all over the world, but, um, specifically, I think what's, what I'm excited about is, uh, is our beer frosters. So we're coming out with those, um, probably, uh, probably not till Q1. Cause there's a, just a, there's, there's just some uh, recent government regulations that a lot of people in the refrigeration business are kind of scrambling around to, to make sure that everybody's complying on um, as far as energy efficiency goes. So we're making sure that, you know, every I is dotted and T is crossed, but, uh, and that slowed it down. Otherwise we would have them already, but these are, these are really cool. So they're, they're refrigerators, but they're beer frosters. So they're going to get down to about 23 degrees. And, um, you know, the, the beer won't freeze, but it'll be uh, darn cold and, and uh, super excited about those. And they have, they have a cool look to them as well. And then beyond that, we have some, um, I, some really innovative ice makers that, you know, I can't get in, into all the details, but those will be coming out next year. And uh, a lot of really cool wine and um, beverage coolers that we're also um, redesigning right now. So those are the top of mind and uh, key products for the company. Yeah, that's awesome. With, with some of those ice makers, are they, uh, I know you can't get too much into the details, but is it a lot different from sort of the portable ice makers that they have out, you know, access to now? Or, or is it really kind of changing the game in that? Yeah, well, the similar look and shape, um, but the ice is that's coming out of them is going to be different. So, and that's, that's the part I can't get into, but it's, it's going to, it's just instead of your typical ice cubes, it's going to be something totally different. Um, that is uh, going to be niche, but also I like to play in that category, in those categories, by the way, you know, the really specific categories, because you can have a lot of fun with something that, you know, people love. It doesn't have to serve everybody, but, um, you can hit a segment, you know, whether it's athletes or, or, you know, some other segment of, of business that, that needs that product. And that, that's what we're doing with ice. That's awesome. Yeah, there's there's um, a lot of interesting things that I've sort of found recently with the the camper van uh, kind of world of appliances. Since I've kind of recently gotten into um, into that, and there's there's nothing better than coming back from uh, a long mountain bike ride to um, uh, you know a cold drink and some some pretty awesome ice makers that that work out of a van. So I'm excited to see kind of what um, what some of those things in the future that you release are, and can't wait to check it out. Yeah, yeah, to all twelve volt, and uh, so out of a van or out of a camper, a lot of it is uh, twelve volt, and it's DC. So it ends up being more expensive because um, DC motors just, I guess, are more expensive than AC motors. But um, also, 
we're not doing a lot of this stuff, but what else, just so you know, what else is pretty cool in that, in, in that market is um, like the refrigerated coolers. So those are, those are pretty hot too. So instead of putting ice in it, you know, you're plugging it in 12 volt and it's either a uh, fridge or freezer, but it's a, you know, it's a nice yeah, chest. Yeah. I've got so one of the Dometic ones. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Oh, cool. Yeah. Those yeah. are fun. Yeah. Do you guys have anything that's kind of like that as well? Um, we've looked, we haven't gotten into that category. Um, but de- some of our partners are working on it, meaning some of the, some of the um, factories that we work with. So it's, it's, it's something we're keeping an eye on, but we haven't jumped into it yet. Thanks for listening to another episode of Inside the Adventure. That was the story of Luke Peters, who, you know, podcast hosts are always the best podcast interviewees as well. You can definitely tell that Luke uh, hosts his own podcast, which for anyone who's interested in some of the things that Luke was talking about today, definitely check that out. It's the Page One podcast, which he launches you know twice a week, so a good bit. Uh, I can barely keep up with once a week, uh, where he features a variety of guests and thought leaders on topics ranging from channel strategy, tariffs, influencer marketing, product launches, and really all the details you need to know about how to grow e-commerce with big box retailers. So if anyone is interested in starting their own company that is in line with what Luke has done with his, definitely check out his podcast uh, for some super, super helpful information on not only how to get started, but how to navigate a lot of those fields that are uh, pretty tough to uh, to get information on. I think you'll really enjoy it. 